Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week's episode features Jess Wiener. She's the CEO and founder of Talk to Jess. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Pam Zapata. She's the CEO at Society 18. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. I am so happy to be sitting here virtually with Jess Wiener. She is the CEO and cultural expert at Talk to Jess. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm so happy to know you. And I just want to tell people how we got connected together. I think Eleni, our COO's sister, went to Penn State and heard you at Penn State or at some sort of Penn State event. Um, and then like adored you and word got back to us that we needed to talk with you. That's like the best way to get connected. I think you just never know, right? Where you're going to meet people, which is so cool. So, um, I want to talk so much about your expertise and I think we could talk all day about it. It's, um, so fascinating, but let's start with one of my favorite questions, which is when you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you'd grow up? Oh, that's easy. I wanted to be three things when I grew up. I knew these by heart. I wanted to be a romance novelist. <laughs> I wrote romance novels all the time as a little kid, like eight, nine years old. I was always writing mostly stories about unrequited love, right? Like, I like him. He doesn't like me. I loved those stories. Um, I wanted to be a lizard trainer. I grew up in Miami, and I really thought, like, somehow I would be the owner of a lizard circus one day. I loved playing with lizards. Did you say Um, a lizard circus? Yeah, I wanted to make a lizard circus. I still think it could be a thing. (laughs) But um, yeah, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to make things, right? So, and then the third thing was like, I did, I, I didn't know the name of producer or I didn't know that title, but I knew like I made carnivals in my neighborhood. I made plays in my neighborhood. Like I was always generating and creating Um, and so those were kind of like the three things that I thought about as a kid. Do you have any of your old stories? I have one book booklet that I found that's like, you know, a notebook paper stapled together on the side. And it it was, I was nine years old. I wrote my name and my age and it was a love story. It was a love triangle actually between a girl who liked a boy and a boy who liked another girl. I mean, I, I also loved after school specials. I loved all the, like the social issue stuff when I was a kid. So uh, I think I just kind of emulated it in my writing. I love that. Well, um, <laughs> let's talk about what you're doing today because um, I'm sure there's lots of writing involved. Um, what is Talk to Jess? So Talk to Jess is a consultancy. You know, I started out as a playwright and an educator and a speaker over 25 years ago. I've been always an entrepreneur, which is crazy. I didn't even plan to be an entrepreneur. I just was an artist with a lot of different ideas and somebody interested in making social change. And so I found a way to build that business for myself. And I started to write and speak on social topics. And then brands started to come to me and ask me to consult and to advise. And Dove was one of my first clients over 16 years ago. We helped to launch the campaign for Real Beauty, and I've built a lot of the curriculum that we use to do self-esteem education worldwide. And from the success of Dove, I kept getting approached from different brands to do similar things and sometimes different things. And so I built a consultancy around the relationships that I was having as a cultural educator and expert for brands and building campaigns and, uh, you know, sort of an accidental entrepreneurial career, honestly, but it's now a 
it makes total sense to me because it's a hybrid of everything that I, I love to do all in one place now. Uh, before you had the consultancy and when you were writing about cultural issues, what was your expertise? Like, what did you go to school for this? Tell me how that went about. No, I didn't go to school for it. Um, I, well, I went to school for three things that I think qualified me to make no money in life. And I found a way to do it anyway, right? I have degrees in women's studies and classics and in theater. So I studied the areas that I'm interested in. But I think what made me an expert was if you think about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours kind of, you know, make you an expert in what you're doing. I spent a ton of time writing plays, traveling around the country, speaking to young people, collecting insights, collecting information. Um, for many, many years before I actually launched the consultancy. I spent, you know, almost 10 years of my life studying in real time these situations. Um, so, so I think, you know, what's interesting is that I built the expertise organically, not entirely sure that I was going to translate it into what I was doing now. I just was living it. And so the expertise came from lived experience and finding a way to creatively share back what people were sharing with me. This is so amazing. So I think the timing of this is this conversation is so so exciting for me because we've been having a lot of conversations for the past few years with clients about um, how the consumer buys um, according to her values, right? So it's not just mm -hmm. about how um, pretty the packaging is and it used to be all about how pretty the packaging is. It's not just about how effective the goop on the inside is. Um, is filling their needs, but the customer wants to buy um, from a brand whose values she values. Um, right. And this is really, um, it seems so obvious to me, <laughs> right, that this is what motivates people, but it's been really hard for some clients to grasp, um, maybe because it feels newer, right, for so long, mm -hmm. for, you know, 20 something years we've been selling based on packaging. Um, so tell me what the um, consumer's experience is today um, and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, no, you're hundred percent on the, on the mark. I think that for about, I don't know, the last seven, eight years in particular, we've been seeing an acute change in wanting to go to your words beyond the packaging, right? We're looking at, um, an aligned social mission. That's important for audiences. When I launched the Dove campaign for real beauty with the brand in 2004, five, six, this was like an unheard of alignment of values, right? This wasn't, you know, you were shopping product based on product ability and what it was able to do for you. And sometimes a legacy brand had a leg up with that. But I think now because the marketplace is pretty saturated with competitors, there's a way now to launch in e-commerce and in online in a way that you don't have to have brick and mortar shelf space. So there's a plethora of opportunity to talk to audiences. So now it just can't be a beautiful package and a great piece of copywriting. It has to be what the whole mission is about. I also think that tends to track with where Gen Z, millennials, and beyond actually are really aligned with, which is I want to share a mission with you. I want to know that my dollar is going towards an equitable work environment, a board that's representative of, of the consumers you're trying to reach. And I want to know that you're in it, not just to sell me something. I think, you know, our internet culture has created such consumer activists because they're able to search and research and look at the facade beyond the marketing. So companies have really been challenged to figure out who they are and what they stand for outside of the products that they offer. The bigger brands sometimes weren't really prepared for that. That's a big shift, right? When you're a legacy brand with 100 years in market, you don't have to do that sometimes. But now you do because there are so many competitor brands that are built foundationally on value. So I think you're 100% correct in that. Values for me is the biggest 
trend inside theme. And I don't see it going anywhere. In fact, I think more consumers now are looking for brands to become brand activists themselves, not just to have corporate social responsibility, but to really change and shape and impact systemic barriers and culture. They see them quite a bit as allies in some of the shared missions that they have. So in the decades previous to the time period we're in now, were customers, were they almost never shopping by their values um, in terms of like a brand values matching a consumer value? I think they probably were subconsciously. I think that they were, but I also think that we didn't have as much media literacy, um, Jody, around how how brands were impacting the way that we received messages about ourselves. I mean, that's where I think the work we did with Dove was so important. We started a critical thinking conversation for a beauty brand around what are the messages around beauty that you're receiving? Who's sending them? What do you believe about yourself? And what does the world at large tell you about beauty? And so that kind of critical thinking, I think, has been more accelerated because we've had more media literacy, more awareness, and and we have more opportunity, again, with, with the internet to kind of connect so broadly with messaging. So I think values were always important, but I think we shopped by the values we were told were important versus this is the shift is, no, you know what? I'm questioning the values you told me were important. Why does my hair have to be straight when it has texture to it? Why does my skin have to be lighter when it's a beautiful, darker shade? So they're questioning some of those values. And then therefore, now they have enough opportunity and market to go shop for brands who match their value and see the consumer for the complex, multidimensional person that she is. Right. So this, um, I mean, I don't want to call it a trend because I feel like it's not trendy. It's like, it, it just is. Um, this would probably be scary for marketers who are um, really happy with the way things are working, where they sold to supermarkets around the world and their shampoo or whatnot was purchased without a lot of um, thought beyond price and packaging. Yeah. yeah. I think it's challenging for people who are um, maybe haven't done some of the inner reckoning that I think has to happen when you start to talk about selling something to somebody in this current climate, right? And specifically now where we are, you know, especially now where we are sort of really looking at safety, security, um, equity uh, in a different way. And so even though I know we might be talking about a hair product or, um, you know, I don't know, a lip gloss as an example, those are all instruments of expression for consumer. And I think for somebody who might not have been trained to think this way, or maybe as comfortable thinking this way, what I find with my clients is that most of them are afraid to get it wrong. And my advice to them is you can't get it right if you don't figure out how to get it wrong. Like you're going to have to be messy. This work is a little bit messy. It's a little bit clumsy, especially if your organization hasn't been set up to really um, do some of that reckoning work. And what I mean by reckoning work is asking yourself some of those tougher questions, right? So, you know, you might have been in market getting an advantage because of your price point. Um, that's important. How else can you talk to her in a way that acknowledges the fullness of her life, not just what her bank account looks like or not just what she values as far as a, a deal, right? So I think it's just expanding our minds to look at consumers, again, as full people and not just like the, the market demographics that we've been so used to targeting them with. I, um, I'm picturing in my head um, brands and corporations the years that I've met that are, um, I call them sales-driven companies and not marketing-driven <laughs> companies. And they're really just thinking about number, number of doors, number of products on the shelf, number of product facings. I don't think that they 
taught themselves to think about the consumer as like a human, a regular person. Um, they're just so sales driven. So you talk about this inner reckoning. That's a heavy lift for a company that wasn't thinking about the customer. Like the, the only customer they're thinking about is the food store or the drugstore. They're not thinking right. about the end user, right? Um, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a big, it's a big assignment. It's an important business assignment though. That's how I would position it. And it's why I do the work that I do because I think that to hire in or to work with somebody who can get you there, you don't have to do it. You can develop a set of skills that require you to stay connected to this work. You don't have to do it very often if you if you dare to do it, right? I mean, you, you do it and then it becomes part of the flex and habit of change of thinking. It's just like you would be changing and thinking against a market trend, right? You have to be flexible in business. And so this is the same ask right now is to be flexible in thinking about what is on the mind of this consumer and not just to match where she is now, but who is she tomorrow? Who is she a couple of years from now? Who is her daughter? You know, who is her son? How are they looking at their relationship to consumer goods? And I think that's an exciting conversation. So I would encourage a company who says, or a leadership team who says, man, that's just a heavy lift. I don't know if that's where I want to prioritize. I would say, I don't know how you don't prioritize that. The world, like the toothpaste is out of the tube. You have to like go with it and figure out where it makes most sense to you. It doesn't mean you have to be a social mission-driven company if that's not what you choose to do, but it does mean that you have to have some idea of a purpose and, and fit into her life beyond the product. I do believe that that's more and more important, and I don't see that going anywhere. And um, for those clients or potential clients who um, are not convinced, is there a way for you to pull market data that shows them if they don't participate, if they don't do this hard work, they're going to lose XYZ market share? Oh, for sure. I mean, we have case studies upon case studies, and you can even see this in um, in our current landscape. You know, some of the brands that were built on empowerment messaging, whether that's Away, whether that's um, The Wing, um, you know, even Girl Boss has had somewhat of a major shift in transformation. So when you say that you stand for something and you can't live into it, not just in your product, but in your team, in your executive leadership inside of your company culture, um, there are tons of case studies that show that's not sustainable. So, I mean, part of what we do for clients is show them a market analysis of where brands are gaining not just market share, but long-term loyalty and equity, which for this demographic and this marketplace, especially Gen Z's, super fickle around brand loyalty because they're shopping for that shared mission and they'll switch if they don't find it. You know, I think about Audi and the Super Bowl ad in 2017 when they made a beautiful ad about gender equity. And then, you know, feminist Twitter and young Twitter online took to looking at whether or not Audi had women on their board as a basic example. And so, you know, you will be held accountable if what you market is not what you're living inside of the business. Um, and I think right. we've so, got plenty of examples of that. So justice isn't um, a marketing decision. Like these things are not marketing strategies. This is like the whole brand company health decision. Correct. I, I think marketing has led these conversations, Jody. Like I think people have done those rah-rah empowerment campaigns thinking that they're matching what women want. And I think what women and men and people who identify as women and men want is authenticity and transparency. And they want to know if you say that you stand for equity and empowerment, that you actually live that principle in your business, in your supply chain, in your marketing, uh, in your philanthropic efforts, right? They want to see a full picture um, because they know they've got the power of consuming. They know that now. I think consumers have a different kind of empowerment because 
they have engaged differently with brands um, in the last 20 years, but especially the last 10. So I think that it's not just, I think marketing is important because for me, marketing is how you're going to communicate that value. But if you don't actually generate it inside the core of your business, that's where the hollowness comes in. It's what I call in my consulting, I call it SFSN. It sounds fabulous. It signifies nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So, I mean, this makes me think of, um, you know, lots of recent conversation I'm posting on social media around racial inequality and how um, the consumer voice has been so powerful in questioning motives of companies are, you know, um, I, I think what, what I saw happen with a lot of brands who are responding to the movement, they were, um, leaning on their, you know, 23 year old community manager to make the decisions that should be from, you know, the board level, right. Um, thinking brands, thinking that racial inequality is a marketing, um, mm-hmm. conversation where it's, it's not, of course. Um, so, you know, is that what it looks like when a brand fails at this, when they, they're not thinking about this holistically and they're not thinking about it beyond the marketing community manager? I think that this is an opportunity for us to look at what privilege actually looks like in a brand or business when a majority of your leadership team has been one race, one economic level, one particular, maybe educational background. So many we know this from the leadership makeup, right? We know that women are inequitable in senior leadership or CEO positions or not even on boards. We know that there's been inequality in the workplace for quite some time. This is what it looks like when it shows up, when it's time to have a more relational conversation about race and you don't have the diversity or the equity built on your company to talk about it. It's not like, I think in this current climate, a lot of brands were caught um, not knowing how to respond because they hadn't put it at the forefront of their thinking inside the business. They were now reacting to a social moment when they needed to be thinking about it as an important and evolutionary part of their business. So I think I talked to my clients at this time around there's a difference between a reaction and a response. Most brands reacted to Black Lives Matter and the death of George Floyd by putting out a statement around how they feel about Black Lives Matter. But that doesn't, that's a reaction. It's an emotional knee-jerk reaction thinking you've got to signal what you stand for. A response, on the other hand, can be more thoughtful. It can take more time. It needs to be backed up by some specifics, some details. And brands were afraid of responding because if they took too long, then people don't think they're doing anything. But at the bottom line, you have to be doing something you can actually come through on, right? Because we don't want a bunch of blank or black squares on Instagram, and we don't want a bunch of empty statements about how Black Lives Matter. We want to know that you're living this in the way that you can in your business. And so I think a lot of companies, big and small, got caught going, wow, I haven't been thinking about this. And that's a great place to start. Why? Why haven't you been thinking about your consumer, your Black consumers, your Indigenous people of color? Like, why haven't they been on top of mind and not to do it from a blame or shame space, but to do it from a real place of checking privilege and figuring out how you can become part of the solution. So, um, you know, in my heart, I feel like for quite some time as consumers, we've been shopping based on do our values meet the the brand's values. Um, Maybe it's more recent where we get to actually like um, get a look behind the curtain to understand more about the brand's values beyond marketing. Um, so this takes me to this topic, and I, I really don't know much about it. Um, maybe you can enlighten me on cancel culture, right? So, like, um, people who don't agree with the values of different companies and saying that they don't want to shop those companies. Like, isn't that, is, this isn't new. Isn't this just the way we've always lived our lives, that, like, I shop where I want to shop based on the values that are important to me? I think that's been 
baseline true. I think where cancel culture has become a thing or a thing that people call, call it cancel culture, is that individuals and consumers now sit on media platforms, sometimes with more followers than the brands themselves. So you're looking at a power dynamic of a consumer who's not just telling her five girlfriends like, ooh, I don't like this company. I read something weird about the CEO. You have a woman who might sit on 15,000, 50,000, 5 million people to say, I heard this is happening and I don't like it. Now, there's pro and con to that. Um, I think pro is that it holds brands accountable in a real-time way, which they haven't been held before, right? So you get feedback almost immediately um, when, when you're off on something, which can actually be very helpful, right? And you get it in real time. It's also the con to it is that you could be playing whack-a-mole and trying to kind of like go after everybody who's disconnected from your values. So I do, that's why doing the inner work, Jody, is so important for a company or a brand because you have to have a strategic framework in which you can answer questions based on that, right? So if somebody says they don't like something or they're doing a petition to stop something about you and you've already done the inner work, you can say, hey, is this a complaint that's worth listening to? Or, ooh, have I been exposed for something we haven't looked at yet? And if so, how am I going to address that? I think, you know, cancel culture is clickbaity and it makes sense. And I know people are very quick to throw out judge, judgments and reactions, which is the internet, right? I mean, that's been true for as long as we've had this platform. And it's scary. And I understand it because people have been getting quote unquote canceled and brands and whatnot. I just also believe that um, we have to have some period of grace and space for people to learn publicly. It's also quite hard to shift systemic racism, to shift white supremacy and thinking about these things in the way you've grown up in culture overnight. So I think, you know, it's a, uh, to me, it's an evolution and a revolution. It's not just like, boom, you're canceled. I mean, I do think there are companies who've done some pretty egregious things and they maybe have a history of those decisions. I would look at canceling based on a history of unlearned issues versus a person or an organization who has made a misstep, which is a very natural, normal thing to do, and are working in the real way to change it. And that's obviously subjective. I mean, that's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but I think it's, again, part of doing business now in this world is you've got to also think about what's your um, temperature for discomfort around these, these issues. Like you as a team and you as a business, can you stand a little heat in order to grow? Uh, you mentioned the word discomfort. Um, it's exactly what I was thinking as you were explaining this to me because I have a friend who runs a brand and one of her partners in the brand, um, you know, just was not behaving in a way that um, respects the values of her. Um, so they they split and she didn't want to publicly share all the many lists of things that this particular person did that, you know, over time just became worse and worse and worse. Um, so she had to be uncomfortable, right? She had to be like, she had to, she chose to stand behind her values, but also be really uncomfortable because there's going to be the haters who are saying she's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And all that happens really publicly on social media, yes. right? It's like, yeah. you know, um, she didn't want to air the dirty laundry. That wasn't part of, um, what, how she wanted to handle it. Um, so, so it does make sense. Like if, since she did her inner work making the decision to say goodbye wasn't a hard decision, but then she had to accept the fact that this is going to be unpretty and uncomfortable yes. for a while. 
Um, and also, nobody can really see the process of you doing work. I think brands struggle with that because as soon as they start to make changes, they want to go and broadcast it everywhere. And again, that's the SFSN. It might sound fabulous. It signifies nothing. Work takes place over a period of time. Like, give yourself some time. And, you know, if you dip in, I know this is a scary proposition, but if you dip for a moment, but come back strong and clear and authentic and transparent, you will see that equity return. I do have case studies on that. I've seen that happen. I just think that's a that's a muscle that most brands and businesses don't develop until it's a crisis. And then they're reacting versus responding. Right. And to do all of this, the no, the do the inner work, to be willing to be uncomfortable, it has to be from the top down. Like, it's not just a mechanism that, like, you know, two or three people in one department can do because then um, then it's chaos. Then they're going to get blamed. And, you know, it's just it, it doesn't work. Um, OK, so wait, repeat the SNS. Oh, SF, it's S-F-S-N. It sounds fabulous. It signifies nothing. Okay, so note to my team who will make all these like fun quote templates from this conversation. That's what I want the quote (laughs) template to be because that is so amazing. Um, Okay, so I think I feel more educated about cancel culture. Um, I understand it's clickbaity to say it. I just really wanted to understand what that means from the brand perspective. And, you know, we understand that the consumer is powerful and she should be, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we also have to think about accountability. You know, one of the things that I've worked with big brands in the past who, um, when they've made a misstep, their apology never sounded human. It always sounded like somebody coined it in the corporate comms division. And it's really like, you know, medicinal and like just sterile and it doesn't feel like a person. And so the other thing I would ask brands to think about with cancel culture is rather than being afraid of being canceled, lean into the opportunity to be accountable and learn from it and share from that. Because I do think consumers really respect that. I think if they can see you being messy, they're more likely to stay engaged than if they see you move away from the mess and try to pretend that it wasn't there. Then I feel like consumers feel like they're gaslighty a little bit, right? You're like, wait a minute, this is wrong. And you're kind of giving me this really blanket statement. Talk to me like a person. You want me to, you know, give you my money, give you my time, give you my loyalty. What do I get out of it? That's also the exchange of a relationship now between brands. So I think it's more, I would say, focus on the accountability and less of the fear of being canceled. Right. So which is so interesting how you're talking, um, you're talking about the brand as if the brand's like another human, right? Um, And is there any time in the history of selling goods um, between a business and an individual that the business is, needs a, needs to really be a human, right? This is, I think that's a function of these times. It's new. I don't know that it's like a one, or that the business is one person or one human. I think it's that it has human attributes. It has empathy. It has transparency, compassion, vulnerability. It allows, I call it a breath, honestly. I think a lot of the marketers that I work with and a lot of the brands that are my clients can breathe if they get to put some life into their brand where they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be you know, super corporate and, and kept away from people. I mean, I think one of the things most brands want and like and thrive on is connection. They like when they engage with their consumers. So guess what? You don't get the benefit of all the fun engagement if you don't also do the work for the tough engagement, you know? So I I would say think about it less as like you're a person and more that you have relational attributes that are going to relate to people. Okay. So um, if I'm a brand that wants to hire Jess, what is the timeline? Like how much inner work, is it a year from 
from my first okay. breath with you until we have like policies and procedures and real real things in place? No, definitely not. I mean, I think some of it we customize our work based on what the goals of are the from the people who are coming to us, right? So I usually work, I do work long-term. So I'm, I'm definitely the kind of high-touch partner. Like I don't run a huge consultancy. I don't farm out this work. I think a big part of what's made me successful with my client partners is I'm pretty high-touch and involved for periods of time. I mean, Dove's been a client for 16 years. Mattel's been a client for 10 years. Like I've retained relationships because that's how I operate. So we usually work a year at a time on an agreement. And then, but within that year, we certainly have things that need to get delivered. I'm also pretty acutely aware of where business needs are, you know, but I, on the things that matter, I, I, if we don't have to rush, I urge us not to rush because then you end up redoing that work over and over again. And then I think one of the things that I do that's unique, I think to the way that we work is it is me as a high touch partner with the brand, but I love to bring in voices to the brand at particular times. So whether those are like inner strategic councils of experts that normally would never work with a brand because they don't want to be associated with the commercial nature of it, but we're coming together on an issue or I'm bringing them issues experts and leaders that could just, because I find that one of the services I provide for our clients that they need is they need that influx of information and inspiration and ideas. Because if your head's down running a big business, your head's down running a big business. You're not looking broadly at culture. And I get that. So I try to provide support and relief for their education and their support because then I find that my leadership does a much better job leading when they're being fed with that info. I love it. I'm so fascinated by you, Joss. I'm so grateful that, um, you know, we got connected because um, I, I love too. this conversation. I want to keep it going. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with um, our, our listeners today. It's like, you're blowing my mind. Um, and I'm, I want to do everything with you. I want to like follow you around, Jess. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing. I think we have good things to do together. I'm excited about that. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoy this interview with Jess. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.